Okay. What's the correct pronunciation of the spirit? Um, well, actually, I would like, so if you looked at the word, how would you pronounce it? <laughs> I feel like this is a setup. No, um, no, no, no. It's not actually. Oh, God. Uh, oh, my goodness. I don't know because it's got there's the little no, funny no thing in there. Kachacha? <laughs> Close. So it's um, traditionally, it's, it's the real spirit spelled with a C, C A C H A C A, and it's pronounced Kashasa. But okay. um, one of my friends calls it Kashasha. Um, another, my uh, bottler calls it ka, um, Kasasha. Um, everybody, and I think eventually I would love to do kind of like a marketing thing of all the different ways How people say it. That would be, be a viral YouTube or Instagram. <laughs> that would be a great marketing thing. You should well, totally do we, that. Because what we don't we don't care how what you what you call it as long as you drink it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god, that's the best. That's your tagline. We don't care what you call it. Just drink it. <laughs> well, we like to say it's um uh all the all the joy of tequila without the bad memories. Okay. See, this is podcast worthy stuff. I might okay, have to we'll edit. Save it. Well, we're recording it, so I might have to loop it in. <laughs> Always wanted to have your own alcohol company? Well, today's guest turned her back on a lucrative and stable corporate career in finance to start a manufacturing company of the Brazilian spirit, Cachacha. Cachacha. I know I totally butchered the pronunciation of that. You're just going to have to deal with it. It's currently nine months into the creation of the company and a few months prior to her launching her spirit company in America. We talk openly about how she's gone educating herself on a totally new industry, navigating the complex world of remote manufacturing between Florida and Brazil, as well as a challenging minefield of alcohol distribution laws within America, a legacy of prohibition. Episode 45, Adele Campbell. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. How did you get? How did your parents come up with the name Adelaide? Because that's an Australian city. It is actually. And when yeah. people, I mean, if you're not Australian, you don't necessarily know how to pronounce yeah. it. And so I usually say it's the city in Australia or um, Guys and Dolls, uh, that old movie from the 50s. Yeah. Uh, there's a character named Adelaide, but it's a family name, actually. And is it? I think it, I don't even think it has any ties to Australia for my family, but um, I had a great aunt Adelaide. Wow. That's, I wonder where. It was probably back some British name. It's pro- most of our towns are named after British things. It's probably some British. Yes, my father on my father's side. It's very um, Pilgrim Mayflower English kind of family. So that yeah. would make a lot of sense. So you have this. We've started, by the way. Um, <laughs> you've fun. got this incredible new spirit company, which. I'm still learning how to pronounce the the name and I'm going to insert well, the conversation that we had before in regards to how to pronounce it. I'm actually going to insert it here. But um, tell me about how this this journey about starting up your own uh, spirit company came about because I would have imagined that it's a fairly saturated market. 
It, it is actually. And I think part of the reason um, I settled on Kashasa was um, because I feel it's a little underloved in the US market. Um, <laughs> some interesting things I've learned about Kashasa as I've um, built this brand and um, started to publicize it is it's the third most consumed spirit in the world. I think there are 1.6 billion liters produced every single year. And um, it's the national spirit of Brazil. And 99% of that volume stays within Brazil. The main export markets are Germany and a little bit to some of the other uh, countries in, in Europe and then the U.S. But think about, you know, the amount of of cachaça that the Brazilians are drinking is, yeah. is amazing. It's a, it's a really deep love for cachaça. And as I taste tested and, um, and did some market research um, with this particular product, I realized that it had huge potential um, it, with a few minor tweaks. Uh, I think it's kind of considered more like tequila was in the maybe the 80s and the early 90s, where kind of put hair on your chest. Um, the, you know, people kind of joke about how it tastes terrible. It tastes kind of like bad grappa. Um, and so it's, it's a punchline that you drink cachaça, but um, much like tequila has experienced this renaissance of premiumization and um, the care and, and, and the, um, you know, the evolution of tequila over the years with Patron and all of the other new, new premium brands that are coming out there, I feel, felt like there was space for a better cachaça. And um, luckily, I was able to, through some clever networking, um, be put in touch with this amazing producer in Brazil, who has been extremely helpful in helping me create a very unique blend of this spirit for us, um, that I, I've actually taste tested with some of my friends who flat out when we were doing market research said tastes terrible, would never drink it, oh my goodness, to absolutely would drink it all day long, every caprinha you want to make. Um, you know, it's it's been this really interesting way of of opening it up and, and um, turning people onto it who might have been turned off by it before. So it sounds like it's similar to like a, a whiskey or a vodka or a gin in terms of there's different tastes and qualities and elements to it that you it's not just a one size fits all. Yes, situation. and and it much like um a, a so really it used to be called. It, Legally in the U.S., it used to be called Brazilian rum up until 2005, and then um, one of the <clears throat> one of the founders of Leblon, which is a very kind of the most well-known cachaça in the U.S., went through to um, legally protect the name cachaça, like champagne. So mm -hmm. cachaça is a legally protected. Um, uh, name it can it can only be produced in Brazil. It has to be produced from fresh sugarcane juice, um, and it has laws around alcohol content and amount of sugar that goes into the product. Um, and so, it's really um, been kind of this ongoing experience of um, of bringing it to market. And so like a whiskey, it can be aged or unaged like a rum. Um, and it can come in all different flavors. If it's 
distilled in a copper pot like ours is. It has a little bit more of a craft or artisanal flavor to it. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the, the cachaças that are out there on the U.S. market um, and worldwide tend to be distilled in, in what they call column stills or, or continuous stills because it, um, it's a much more efficient way of distillation. So why is it not done in a – you mentioned that you do it in a copper still. So why is it not done in a, like a, a barrel like some of the other spirits are? It can be. In fact, um, the three cachaças that go into our blend, one of them is aged in a stainless steel barrel for nine months, and then another one is aged in, and I'm going to butcher this word, so apologies to any Brazilian or Portuguese speakers who might be hearing this, um, Hekichiba wood barrels for three okay. months. Okay. And then there's a third um, cachaça that we use that is aged in balsamo barrels for three months. And What's a balsamo barrel? Um, balsamo, I think, is a native Brazilian hardwood. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And the good news is that um, in Brazil, the woods that they use to age these cachaças in um, tend to be very sustainably sourced. They are reusing the woods um, as they tear down structures or things like that, because a lot of them, some of the rarer woods are endangered species or they're um, under protection from the rainforest. And so the distilleries in Brazil have gotten very, um, very clever about where they source their woods from and, um, and how they're they're being mindful to the sustainability of the product, but it can be aged in stainless steel or wood. And just like a fine whiskey or a fine rum, it will take on the characteristics of, of the barrel that it, or this, the method that it's aged in. When you're using the wood barrels, are you using barrels that potentially have had other spirits or other wines in them previously? Like, They're... like a whiskey or I don't know. I'm I don't actually know that, but I know that they do that. I, I've got no experience with. Yes, uh, there are. I, I believe there are cachaças out there that brand themselves as being aged, perhaps in um, in bourbon barrels from the U.S. Yeah. or um, Chardonnay barrels or something like that, oak barrels, um, and it gets it's the, it's imparts these really unique flavors, and that's I think why. I was drawn so much to cachaça. It's this very complex um, and very historical spirit to the Brazilians, which is relatively unknown to the U.S. And um, it's got a lot of depth to it beyond just being grappa. Mm. So are you producing it as a mixed drink or just the pure spirit or both? The beauty of the cachaça uh, of the cachaça that we're producing is it can go both ways. So um, we can you can just pour it out, as you say, warm, you know, neat into a into a uh, rocks glass, yeah. or throw a couple ice cubes in it, and yeah. it makes a beautiful caprina. Okay, so you're so you're selling it as a, a pure spirit bottle, not as a pre-mixed drink. drink. Yes. Okay. Although um, that's definitely on our plan as, you know, I think it's probably been the same case in, in Australia as it has been here in the U.S. where that whole ready to drink to go cocktail has been very popular as, you know, COVID's kind of evolved and, and uh, we've looked into 
how to replicate that cocktail experience at home. Um, ready to drinks are, are part of that and whether they come in cans or glass bottles that you pour and, and, and into a glass, um, it's definitely something we're thinking about, especially since most people don't know what to do with cachaça. Mm. They maybe they know caprina, but they don't know that it's cachaça that goes into the caprina. And so that could be a whole part of the education process to turn Americans onto it. That's a lockdown recipe for you to try. Yes. As I sit here in my sixth lockdown in eight months in Melbourne. <laughs> I'm um, in, unfortunately I'm in Florida, so Florida has, for better or worse, no restrictions. <laughs> Let's not get into that at the moment. It's a sore, it's a sore spot. Yes, I um, can imagine. <laughs> um, so how did you learn this whole science? Because it is a science, this whole distillery, alcohol, spirit world, I suppose, mm-hmm. because it is a completely different, well, I don't know your background, but it is a completely different world to someone, to me anyway. Oh, completely. I'll, I mean, in January 1st of this year, I was working as a product lead for a healthcare analytics startup in Boston that, you know, I wouldn't bore you with the details of what it did, but basically all of the healthcare data, you know, they would parse it for insights and things like that and present it to health insurance companies or large companies who are self-insured and things like that. Um, so I was working with Tableau. I was working with um, with our chief strategy officer. Healthcare was really had healthcare insurance was in my background. And then when I quit that job, I didn't have the plan for Kashasa yet. Um, I just knew that I was very unsatisfied in that job and that career path. And so, giving myself the mental space to kind of explore other options and other career paths open to me, I found the opportunity with Kashasa and it just resonated with me. And so having no experience, I've never even been a bartender. Um, I, I will mix up drinks when I have, you know, friends over or anything like that, but um, no experience with the spirit world, no experience with distillation or production or supply chain or anything like that. And so everything I know now is things I've managed to learn um, in the last eight months, which is uh, which has been quite the journey. So that's interesting to me because you left. So you left a. I'm assuming what was a secure and stable career, um, and then you went in a complete 180 direction to an industry that you've got no idea about and logistics. Talk me through the that pro the the process of sort of unraveling from the and I'm saying unraveling not in a negative sense but unraveling that corporate mindset to how and I'm going to butcher this Kasasha um resonated with you because it's such a different path how did you go from go to woe really um I I think part of what I was lacking in that previous life was autonomy and um, a sense of controlling my own destiny. Um, Mm. I had my, my husband um, is very entrepreneurial and kind of self-driven and being around that, you just kind of absorb that energy. And 
when I'm working my, when I was working my nine to five, it just wasn't giving me the same satisfaction as he gets from truly building something that is a hundred percent his own. Mm -hmm. I was, I was always kind of, I don't want to say fighting the powers that be in my other company because I had one vision for what I wanted the product to be. And, and, you know, being a product, being in product is all about striking that balance between what the end user wants and what the customer wants and what the business can sustain and and what makes strategic sense. Um, And I had feelings one way and, you know, budgetary and resource wise is the company could only allocate me so much. And so I just kept getting so frustrated and I was losing sleep. I was literally spending nights where I was awake from two to five o'clock in the morning, anxiety ridden over the next day of how do I go to, you know, go to bat for these things that I really believe in about this product. And I'm fighting for this that I, I truly believe, believe in, and I'm not getting the traction. And it's just kind of I don't, it's just so frustrating. Mm. And my husband just said, you know, why, why are you doing this to yourself? You're killing yourself for somebody else. Mm. Um, And at the end of the day, somebody else's company and somebody else's success. And I kind of, when I, when I quit the job, um, I loved my, my boss. He was, we, we were very kindred spirits. We would joke back and forth. We had a great rapport and a great relationship. And when I quit, I, don't think that when I called him that morning, I was go- I knew I was going to quit. And so it just kind of came out that I think I need to leave. And whoops, can't put that one back in the box. <laughs> and and I, I, you know, I, I burst into tears on the phone and I said, I'm, I'm sorry. And I think that, you know, I know that this puts you in a tough spot, but I think that this is the right decision for, for you. I've, I, you know, I've, I've given you as much as I can. Um, and I'm, I'm available to consult and help and you can always call me, but I need to take a break. It's, it's just too much stress and and pile on, you know, everything else that's happened in the last 18 months on top of it. Um, but what I did was give myself breathing room. And then from there, I kind of realized my rationale was this, if I take the same amount of energy that I was pouring into this role and take a third of it to supporting my husband and his business, because I can always, there's always stuff to be done, operations and whatever. Mm. Um, I can help him. I know I can help him out. Um, a third of it, putting it into getting out into the Miami tech world startups. Miami's now kind of exploding as a technology startup. Um, oh. That's place. interesting. I heard Austin was. I heard Texas was. Yes, yes, that's absolutely true. And and in the last year, you've seen this kind of diaspora away from Boston and New York and um, San Francisco into some of those cooler second cities that are just kind of all of the the people were saying, well, it's really expensive in San Francisco and it's, you know, the weather sucks in Boston. Um, Let's go to Austin where the food's great and the weather's great or Miami where there's beautiful beaches. And so I knew that there were companies that I could contribute to and and be involved with in Miami if I I found the right role. And then if I took that last third and focused on something, doing it for myself, a passion project. And I had always kind of kicked around... um, with a friend of mine, this idea of, um, we called it basic bitch brewing. 
um, where you lean into the whole and, and it's really kind of blown up in, in not in those exact ways, but, um, you know, with the low alcohol seltzers, that kind of cool girl, um, who doesn't want to drink beer, but also isn't a vodka soda girl. Um, and so we were talking about that and I was looking into options of, you know, if you wanted to do something like this, what would the process be? How do you have to find a distillery? How do you find cans? You know, what is, and you just, I just started going down this rabbit hole and I found a distillery here in Florida that, um, what I, what I realized is it was called private labeling. And a lot of distilleries will do this where they offer private label services and you can basically turnkey your own product. It could be a rum, a vodka, a gin, which I've learned is just herbal infused uh, vodka, um, a tequila. What? You know. Gin's verbal infused vodka? Yes. So actually I made gin at my, um, my bottler oh, does my a gin class. Oh, my whole life's been a lie. You take, yeah, well, and, and there's laws like Kishasa, there's laws, laws around gin where it has to have juniper and things like that. Yeah. But you take vodka and then you basically um, put it through a still with a whole sachet of herbs and, you know, juniper and sandalwood and whatever other um, aromatics you want. And then you distill it and then you proof it down to 40% or whatever you want. So it's really it's it's just kind of a. An I'm googling vodka. this. This this is blowing my mind. I thought it was one. I thought vodka traditionally was um, potatoes, um, but I think it can be made out of something else as well. The vodka can be made out of anything. It can be made out of um, rice, potatoes, grain, corn. Mm. And then gin. Oh, oh I feel I'm like so I've been sorry. living a lie. <laughs> Not to take anything away from gin. I am actually, and that was part of why I I got into Kashasa too, was I love gin. I love tequila. I love a good last word or a good gin martini because vodka martinis don't count. Um, Oh, no, they count. (laughs) Vodka vodka martinis are not martinis. It's just, you just. Not even a dirty vodka martini? You just want alcoholic olive juice. Oh, no. Yeah, see, dirtier the better. I love olives. <laughs> oh, I do too, but you need some of that aromatics from the gin. Um, and so what I did was I found this distillery, and they had all of the classic spirits that you would think of. And yeah. then the last on their list was Cachaca. And I had had Cachaca, and we'd had Caprinas here in Miami, and it was it was a new spirit to me. And I went, wait a second. That could be something. Because everybody does vodka everybody's does tequila when Kendall I, I like if you know when Kendall Jenner has a tequila brand you know you kind of reach peak tequila um well, doesn't so, the, the rock has one now too yes he does I am a rock fan I can't so am I, can't. I. I didn't know Kendall had one though oh yes she launched it she got all sorts of sorts of hate for cultural appropriation because it's called 818 which is the area code the telephone number area code for Calabasas um, which is where they're from, obviously very wealthy part of LA. And, you know, so she's trying to lean into the whole thing. Oh, um, look, I think you can, can't do anything right in this world. Everyone's got no, a problem well, with everything that you do. And and I'm conscious of that too, because with, with Cachaca, it is such a, a, it's so wrapped up with, with Brazilian culture and Brazilian yeah. identity. And um, I am not Brazilian, but what yeah. I am is the target market to make it, um, uh, appealing to the U.S. consumer, and I kind of get around that by saying, you know, it, the the Cachaca brand isn't about me, and I do kind of try and separate the two. 
um, because you've got other tequila brands like 21 Seeds where the brand story is very much her story. It's very much the founder's story. Cachaca is not my story. It is the opening up of Brazil and the options that Brazil has to offer to an American consumer yeah. um, in a in a in a way that is more palatable and more friendly to the American consumer. Um, so Cachaca just stuck and it was just it snowballed quickly. I just because I had I wasn't working, I had a lot of time on my hands and it was just every single day tiny little steps of until it became an LLC and a product. <laughs> so you really started just for funsies investigating this and then suddenly the knowledge grew and you went, actually, I can do it. Is that well, somehow it? What I, what I realized is through being around my husband and other entrepreneurs, what I realized is that entrepreneurs tend to look at the world a certain way. They look at the world as a never ending series of problems that need to be solved. And mm. what I, what, what he helped me understand was I had the, that ability in me to look at the world that way. And my career wasn't allowing me to do that. So when I left my job, I wasn't looking for Kashasa, but I was looking for an opportunity that I could contribute to. And I actually had a couple of other business ideas that I was thinking about, one of which was um, a platform to help enable kind of that e-worker, uh, I think they're called digital nomads, where people travel around the world and work yeah. digitally. Um, so that was one idea I had. I also had an idea of matching young people with elderly because I think everybody has that one like little cause that kind of hit, hits their heart. And for me, it's lonely old people. I hate the idea of thinking of, of aging alone. And so um, I wanted to find a way to, to, to pair that together. Um, and then Kashasa just was one of the, and I poked at all of those and, and explored them came up with a few business plans and business models, but it just wasn't resonating. And then with Kashasa, it just seemed like it was a fun product. It was an opportunity to turn a whole bunch of people onto something new. And I was honestly within myself looking for a new thing to drink. I, you know, you can only drink so much rosé, you can only drink so much gin, or I don't really drink vodka for uh, you know, reasons I've already explained, <laughs> but um, love rum, love whiskey. And just, it was just another thing like Aperol was a few years ago. It's another bottle for your bar that just adds depth to whatever you're trying to make. So what is the, what's it made out of? It is made from fresh sugarcane juice. And so this is where the distinction between what is traditionally considered rum and cachaça um, the line is defined. So rum is made from the byproduct of sugarcane production, which is molasses, mm -hmm. and you ferment it and then you distill it to get rum, which is why a lot of rums, even white rums, still have a, an almost caramelly sweet kind of flavor to them. Delicious. It, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Mojitos and any kind of Caribbean drink. Love them. Um, but cachaca had, because it's made from that fresh raw sugarcane juice fermented and then distilled, it has almost like a tequila vibe to it, but a more refreshing, grassy, fruity 
kind of note to it. And this is where, you know, the sommeliers can jump in with all of their flowery words. I don't, I don't nearly have that kind of <laughs> vocabulary to talk about the, the depth of flavor, but um, the beauty, the good thing about my, the cachaça that we have is um, when I have somebody try it, tequila can be very polarizing. You either tolerate it or you don't tolerate it. My best friend had a bad vacation in Belize and will hasn't drank tequila since, but she'll drink cachaça. And I have another friend who loves tequila, Don Julio, three limes everywhere she goes. It's the best loves cachaça. And so it's really this kind of happy midpoint between rum and tequila. And it plays just as well. You could substitute it in a margarita or you can substitute it in a mojito and everything in between. Because it's Brazil uh, manufactured and you're living in Florida, did you have to go down and stay at all in Brazil? I haven't been down to visit the distillery yet. And actually that's a, a kind of a unique part of, of me starting this company. I've done it all remotely. Mm. Um, COVID, so, you kind of have to, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so I haven't been down to visit the distillery, but um, I have a great relationship with the supplier. He and I, I feel like I know him already and That's he's such lovely. a lovely guy. Um, but it's just been through email and then we ship things to each other. Figuring out how to actually import samples the first time was an interesting experience. I'm right now in the middle of trying to um, ship it. So part of our business model is that rather than bottle it in um, in Brazil, we ship it in bulk so that we don't have the added um, shipping and, and environmental impact of shipping the glass to Brazil and then the glass and the materials to Florida. We have the glasses manufactured here in the U.S., brought to Florida. We ship the cachaça in bulk. And then we bring it to Florida, proof it down, and then it goes into the bottles. So right now I'm in the process of trying to figure out how to get totes of liquid onto uh, uh, an ocean freighter to deliver to a port here in Florida for eventual delivery to my my bottler. Um, I've never done it before, and I'm figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to it's a lot to figure out. Um, what? You mentioned that your your husband's an entrepreneur and you're newly married. Congratulations, a couple of weeks Thank ago. Thank you. What industry is he in? Is he in a similar industry at all? No, and I think that this is really kind of goes back to what I was saying before about entrepreneurs. He um, he runs a a consulting firm that focuses on the technology industry. So you know the the tech troubles we were having logging in at the beginning kind of thing. Um, but he follows the tech industry and works with all of the big name companies you would think of, but um, he focuses on the value that technology delivers. So um, it's really about delivering ROI and his background is in marketing and finance. Um, similar to me, I have more of a product and finance background, but he focuses on, on return on investment. And so um the interesting thing is that ROI and value really is the common, uh, the common thing that runs through everything. So mm. even when I go to talk to um, a distributor, I need to present my product as a value statement. Why would mm. you stock my product or, over somebody else's? 
And in order to do that, I need to demonstrate that my product has value. And to get to the end consumer, I need to generate some sort of a value to that consumer. Um, and so having that mindset of going into to starting Kashasa has been extremely helpful. It sounds like it was a fairly organic experience, but how scary was it going from that stable paycheck to I'm starting up a company and I'm not going to have any income? I will eventually write a book and it will be titled Insomnia, Hair Loss and Other Perks of Being a CEO. <laughs> no, entrepreneur. Entrepreneur, CEO, yeah. yeah. It's it's just uh yeah, other perks of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um I I've just accepted the fact that um there will be a, a 60 to 90 minute period in the middle of the night that I'm not sleeping. Wow. Um for whatever reason, whether it's terror that I'm not going to be able to get my product on a boat in time to it's going to get here and I'm not, I, you know, nobody's going to want it um, to did I get back to that person about my bottle design or generating content? How do I generate demand for this? It, it was because I have come from a career as an actuary, which is literally the single most risk averse career you can possibly have. Just um, explain briefly what an actuary does. Um, the way I always explained it is if an accountant looks backwards at the books and, and balances the books and looks at the finances, the actuary looks forward and kind of looks at the finances and predicts what's going to happen. So we all kind of have a crystal ball and we say our actuarial judgment gives, you know, we bless this projection and we um, expect this to happen in the future. So it's very, it's just based off of a lot of experience of trends in the market and what you've seen in the past. Um, but it's very cyclical. And to someone like myself, it was kind of boring, for lack of a better word, mm. um, dependable and um, monotonous monotonous, not creative, you know, um, yeah. anytime a, an actuarial job posting says that, you know, you're looking for somebody innovative, they're not. <laughs> so <It's all> lies. <laughs> uh, well, an innovative actuary and an innovative entrepreneur don't, don't sit at the same lunch table. <laughs> How, Oh, see, that's interesting. Have there ever been any situations or any times where you've gone three o'clock in the morning, I can't sleep, like this is enough, like I'm going back to the less stressed nine to five? Not that they're ever really nine to five, but you know what I mean. I think, no, I don't think I've ever had the um, the feeling of I would just like to go back to a steady nine to five because I really like the that what wakes me up in the middle of the night is fear in equal parts fear and excitement mm. of I want to see this succeed I want to see this get out into the world and be able to walk into a shelf at um, at a, a, a spirit store and stand there and go I did that. Um, there is something that level of satisfaction of my mom being able to go into a liquor store in Massachusetts, which is 2000 miles away from where I am, and pick up a bottle of my product off the shelf is a level of satisfaction I don't think I would ever find back in the my my old career. 
um, because it's just so tangible. And that was the other thing that really was um, frustrating about being an actuary because at the end of the day, there's nothing tangible. And I used to really look, we would volunteer um, as a group, we would go to the the food bank in Boston and um, you would stack food in the boxes and stack them up and everything like that. And I always looked forward to it because it was something you could look at and mm. physically see the results of all of your hard work, which I wasn't getting in staring at spreadsheets and coming up with numbers to get shipped off to you know, be used in some amorphous, undefined way. It's interesting that you say that. It's one of the things that I loved about, I've always had a career in sales and um, running businesses and and growing startups and and so forth. And you see those figures starting to grow and that's a tangible thing, but it's still not your business. It's still not your product. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a very interesting, um, different mentality. How did you stop the fear and excitement mixture from tipping over to being fear only, and and having that as a a negative rather than a positive to push you on with the excitement? It it's so important, and I'm so lucky to have such a great support system because my husband is great for bouncing ideas off of we've we've kind of gone through this push and pull of he's been doing this for so long he thinks about things a certain way and so when I bring a problem to him or I'm terrified about something he kind of he can be a little bit like well here's the answer go do this and I I, I've got there have been moments where you know we've had it out because I'm so overwhelmed and he's just seeing all of these pieces fit together so perfectly and I'm still trying to I, you know I'm still drowning from, I'm, yeah, yeah. And I'm, 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 you know he's I need to get from A to D and I'm at B and he goes oh I'm at F you know yeah like, <laughs> this is great this is so this all makes sense to me and so being able to rely on on a support system um, is is important. So he's great for business advice. And then one of my best friends is um, a designer. She she does UI UX in the in the software development sphere. But um, she's always been my go to person. I you can't said that design. like I should know what that is. Oh, user interface and user <laughs> okay, experience. <there> you go. <laughs> um, so <laughs> no worries. <laughs> So the way you interact with things, the way you interact with what the button looks like or what the the flow through an experience, like logging into Zencaster would be um, user experience. But um, she is very designed. That's the program that we're using to record that on. That's why she mentions it. And so she is just so great with design and all the creative stuff. And so anytime I've needed to decorate an apartment or um, do a piece of content or anything for for Instagram or anything like that, um, or an opinion on what my logo should look like, I can lean on her. And so I'm the person that gets massively overwhelmed with anything creative. Um, When it comes, I I just, the the scariest thing in the world to me is a blank piece of paper Mm. and the instructions to draw something, create Mm. something. I've, I'm paralyzed now just thinking about it. <laughs> what would I do? Um, and I well, don't. Well, you're more te- of the. Lo- you sound like you're more the logical system 100%. focused. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. That's, that's me too. Yeah. Yeah, 
give yeah. me give me a good process give me a good step-by-step give I'll me a write form those to processes. happy to write them <laughs> just yeah. don't make me uh, draw a bloody flower or something i'm stuffed <laughs> so so she so between my husband and my best friend i have these two creative biz- and business-minded people that i can use to allay that fear and mm. who have strengths where i have weaknesses mm. and the one thing i've kind of realized through this process is um finding people who can and will support you is the most important thing so i i kind of didn't tell my mom about this i didn't tell her i quit for a really long time, maybe six or eight weeks, um, because I didn't want her to plant that seed of doubt in my brain mm, that you just smart. gave up, gave up yeah. benefits, you gave up a salary, um, 401k, all of the success and, and prestige, why would you ever do that? And so I waited until it was more than just a, a grain of an idea to present to her and say, here's a website, here's a product, here's things that, you know, you can point to and be proud of. Um, like you were proud of my actuarial career. Now you can be proud that I'm, I'm a spirits entrepreneur. Were they um, very much a paycheck uh, in their career or were they entrepreneurial themselves? My parents? Yeah. Um, very much paycheck. So yeah. my mom was, um, is still a nurse. Actually, she retired. She just retired. Um, but uh, yeah, my mother's always been very, the one who's looking for stability for me. Yeah. And and that had, I mean, that had a lot to do with the way I grew up because it was a very financially unstable situation. And uh-huh. so she's always looking out to say, make sure you're taking care of yourself. Make sure that you're not putting yourself in a, in a um, precarious position where you could be vulnerable to, to getting into a tight, you know, a tight financial spot. And I've always been that very financially minded. Um, and so making sure that I had a path to revenue positive, as I say, I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking at that horizon right now. I want my company to be revenue positive, <laughs> um, is, uh, is the only, you know, my main goal right now. You mentioned that it was a, a, uh, financially, unstable childhood I would have thought nursing would have been fairly stable was your dad in the picture he was um so when I was growing up I forget what how old I was maybe six or seven uh, my mom yep. was a registered nurse like she she and my my father would travel all around they lived in she lived in Alaska Hawaii, Arizona, um, traveling as a nurse. Yeah. yeah, I was actually, they got married and, um, uh, in Hawaii, uh, probably, you know, nine months minus one day before I was born. <laughs> hmm. Good. She was, my mother was a good Catholic woman. Uh, or is a good, was it a, a good short, Catholic. short courtship? <laughs> no, they were together for a very long time. So my parents were together for eight years before they got married. And obviously wow. I showed up nine months later. Yeah. Um, but they were living in Hawaii. And um, when I was, and I, I have a younger brother. Um, and when I was about six or seven, my mom decided that she wanted to go to chiropractic school. And so we moved from Cape Cod, uh, where we lived, to upstate New York so she could go to chiropractic school for four years. And then from there, we moved back um, after she got her degree, and she she kind of struggled getting her business set up. So I guess 
that's really, I think, where she and I differ. Um, she ne- she always kind of struggled with the the logistics and and all of the moving parts of being um, being a business owner. And for whatever reason, she didn't want to go into a bigger practice. Lots of things going back and forth. Um, and so the school that she took on from going back to school was massive even by today's standards. And then um, my parents got divorced and my father's family had really been the one financially supporting us. And so she basically had the rug pulled out from underneath her in very swift manner and um, needed to, to figure everything out very quickly. I was fortunately old enough. I was in late high school when this all happened just about to go into college. And I kind of had a little bit of money set aside for college. I chose, made the decision to go to a state school rather than a private school. Um, that gave me a free ride. I worked three jobs in college to make sure that I had money. I really, I avoided asking my mom for money anytime yeah. I could, because I knew that just, I didn't want to add that to her stress. Mm. That's a very um, lovely and mature outlook to have as a kid growing up. Um, how did you meet your husband? So after school, after college, I had a, an undergraduate degree in applied math and short of going back to graduate school, um, I was a little lost at what to do. And so, um, had a little bit of a lost year in between undergraduate and finding, um, a master's program. I went to a master's in actuarial science from Boston university which was actually a night program. It was meant to be a professional development program. Um, And part of being an actuary, as any actuary will tell you, is taking exams. And there is a rigorous, I think, 10, maybe more exams now um, that that lead you along the path of your career. And they are incredibly difficult. You study for them for months and um, it takes over your life. And I had started to take these exams, but I wasn't having any luck kind of finding a job as an actuary. So I went back to school to get my master's. Um, But as any good financially responsible person would, you're spending money to go to school. Um, And I knew I needed a full-time job during the day to support that. Um, And so I ended up working as an analyst for his company, 10 years ago, which is how we met. Um, And then over the last, over that five-year period, our relationship evolved and we grew closer and closer. And, um, you know, it's, we joke about how we've known each other for 10 years and it just, we, we're still the same kind of happy, we're best friends. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's great. That's good. I was saying to my husband the other day that it's, I think all the lockdowns that's happened in Melbourne, but it, I think it has made us closer because you literally were in four walls together 24-7. Yes, a couple of cats. and we joke about how um, when, even when I was working um, at the insurance company and in and, and product management, um, we would commute in together. So we would drive in together. I would walk to work, usually go to his office for lunch go back and then we would drive home together. So we were never more than 20 feet apart. Even before COVID, we joke about how attached at the hip we are. And we've been that way since, you know, for the last five years, solid. Um, And then, you know, getting married was just kind of the the next step. Yeah. 
I think it's for us it was just you know you leave you leave early we live an hour away from the city so it's traveling into the city you're up at sort of 5 30 to get ready to go in and then you back at sort of you know eight o'clock at night and you're knackered yeah. so you're not long to bed so it's you know you're close but it's a different sort of closeness and then now it's like <laughs> oh I haven't seen another person in 18 months <laughs> <laughs> Um, where are you going now with the, with the business? Because it sounds like it's a, such a fantastic opportunity. I'm looking forward to seeing this product, your product in, in Australia. Yes. Um, it's, uh, so like I mentioned, we are, um, in the, so actually there's, there's a couple of interesting hiccups that we've run into. We were planning on launching this month. It was supposed to be bottled and ready to go this month. Um, we're behind schedule for a couple reasons. Um, some of which you, you know, people may be aware of and some not the number one thing is, um, glass is really in short supply. Um, I have, I was that crazy woman. I was dialing for dollars for a week straight, trying to find five pallets of this one specific shape of bottle, um, doing deals left and right. I found a great broker who helped me out and was looking for a swap because people order, they put in orders a year in advance. So they kind of plan their supply chain. But because I'm a new brand, I had, you know, waited until May to decide that I wanted to place an order it was supposed to be ready in June, and then they pushed production to November. And I'm why saying, is it I in can't... such short supply, though? Um, it's a number of factors depending on where you are in the world. Uh, number one is um, staffing. So because of COVID, it can be hard to find the people to work in the warehouses to mm-hmm. manufacture the glass. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also on a broader economic scale, I think inflation and the risk of inflation has a little bit to do with it because everybody's kind of, if everybody's holding on to their, holding their breath a little bit to see what inflation does before they commit to spending X amount of money or, or commit to selling their, their inventory at a certain price point. So, um, worker shortage, the risk of inflation, and then um, potentially material shortage, uh, all dialing back to COVID and, you know, supply chains have been stretched and, and are really impacted by this. So what, what lag time are you looking at from the, once you find the bottles or the design that you want and the manufacturer, how, what's the weight? Um, I, I got very lucky. Um, so I managed to find the five pallets that I needed. I, uh, they were on a truck to my bottling, uh, where we screen print 360 degrees around, around the bottle. So the design goes all the way around the bottle. Um, and they're, they're actually there at the screen printers right now, um, in Wisconsin getting printed up. So we got really lucky. And I think it was just my broker worked a miracle and um, managed to find somebody who had ordered, you know, X number of pallets and didn't want a certain number. So I was able to buy, essentially buy them from them. And that's just one of one tiny little piece of this world that I've been exposed to along the way of working with the supplier and understanding their supply chain, working with the glass production and the brokers and understanding um, their workflows and their supply chain. And then the other part of it has been um, ocean freight. So because we ship our product from Rio, um, it needs to go uh, on a container, uh, on a container ship and get delivered. And um, 
freight rates have just been going up exponentially. So what I had initially priced into my shelf price was um, maybe a third of what my price is going to end up being for shipping it to the US. So when you're working out the logistics side of things and the business structure, are you, well, not so much the structure, but more the logistics, are you um, securing distribution models and uh, stockists before you go into the whole you're in the dark. I know. <laughs> I know. I was just going to, I was trying to see if I can move and put the light on because the sun goes down so quickly here in Florida. Um, it did go down know. very quickly. Yes. And now I'm in the complete dark. <laughs> so let's turn the light. It's not recording on the some... video, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you, the listeners are going to say, why is she in the dark? Um, there we go. Hello. Sunshed some shed some light on the subject. Um, so were you, did you need to find um, uh, alcohol distribution and stores that, I mean, Australia it would be like a Dan Murphy's or something like that. I don't know what you've got over there. Um, but do you, do you have to find that before you say, okay, I'm actually going to start manufacturing. So, you know, you've got somewhere to stock and sell your end product. I, um, I'm confident. So I'm self-distributing to start off with just because mm -hmm. the margin is better for me. Um, mm -hmm. and because the volumes that I'll be, um, manufacturing probably wouldn't be large enough for, for a distributor here in the U S and I, you know, the, the, Thank you. Thanks to prohibition in the U.S., we have this convoluted system of the three-tier system where you have um, suppliers and then you have wholesalers and then you have the retailers. And mm. then from there, you have the end consumer. Mm. So um, to to a lot of times to international brands that try and enter the U.S. market, they're a little confused by those hoops. And so I'm, um, I'm considered a supplier slash importer because I'm importing my own product. So I will need a distributor in order to sell through to a retailer or, or a bar. And so um, there are creative models here, <clears throat> creative models here in the US where uh, you can self-distribute and maintain some of that margin for yourself as you grow awareness for the brand and things like that. From my actuarial mind and my my you know my my financial planning mind, um, having a lot of spreadsheets about how many accounts I have, how much they're purchasing, how often they're repurchasing, and being able to plan for all that stuff just makes my my Excel heart sing. <laughs> so do you have? So you've already got um, retailers lined up, ready to go. Um, we don't yet, mostly because. There, it's a catch-22 yeah. because if I go out and try and pre-sell, and it's called pre-selling, if I go out and try and pre-sell it to um, a big retailer here in Miami and I say, yep, it's going to be ready for August, and then I end up with a hiccup like the bottles or supply or anything like that, that looks reflects poorly on me as a supplier. So I can't go out and pre-sell until I'm basically until the, the liquid is on a freight boat and I have an estimate of when it's going to arrive. Um, so... This week um, has actually been my my most stressful week trying to arrange pickup and um, and transport for it uh, for my liquid to get to to uh, here in Miami so we can bottle it. But once we do that, um, I've actually been doing a fair amount of networking with uh, people here in Miami, just gauging um, excitement and interest. 
I had my supplier ship me a bunch of sample so that I have little bottle sample sizes that I can give people um, to have it taste tested. And uh, we just have to be set expectations very clearly that this is a product that's coming to market. It will be available at this price point um, in the next three months. Um, and we'll reach out and, you know, we can build a partnership and, and discuss more when, when we're ready. Um, the other trick that I've learned from talking to industry experts is um, one way to easily get the initial stock space on a shelf with some mm. of the big retailers here in Florida is to have a score. So there are uh, competitions all over the world that accept products um, like mine and, you know, any, any spirits or wine competition um, and you get a score. And so that's what we did back in um, May, we submitted our blend to the Ultimate Spirits Challenge, which um, is one of the few challenges that allows products that aren't in their final packaging because we didn't have the bottles or, or the final design yet or the final approval with the federal, uh, the federal powers that be. Um, and we scored 90 points out of 100. Wow, so that's awesome. It, yeah, so that will be a really great marketing um, point when we do decide to go, when we're ready to go to retailers to, uh, to have, it, uh, have that to point to. Is, it, is the U.S. similar to Australia where you need to negotiate a price or location from a visual marketing point of view on shelf at the, at the retailer? It's interesting because it's a legal gray area. Um, mm. There's all sorts of there's all sorts of legal um, there's all sorts of laws out there that say what you can and can't do in order to gain favorable placement. So you're able to provide let's say it's a bar and you really want your product to be on their happy hour menu or mm. you want it to be a featured cocktail. I can't give them a discount or I can't pay them to put it there, but I can. Mm give them t-shirts and, you know, coasters and bar glasses and things like that. So there's this weird, I'll, I'll definitely be learning more about it as we, as we ramp that up. Um, but it's, it's an interesting set of incentives that you need to put in place and then selling to what they call on-premise, which is a bar or a restaurant where the alcohol is being poured for consumption there versus selling to a retailer, which is considered off-premise. Mm. Um, it's very different. So you're, you're marketing and, and you coming in as a partner, a supplier partner, you need to position yourself differently for each of those um, buyers. So are you, are you primarily focusing on bars at the moment? Just watch your microphone. I think it's um, rubbing on your shirt. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think um, primarily what we'll do is definitely focus on bars. Um, and then there are a handful of retailers here in South Miami that do specifically love to stock local brands. Mm. Um, and so we kind of say Cachaca is um, born in Brazil and bottled in Miami. And so uh, there is a certain certain part of the population here that will buy it just because it's kind of a local, um, a local product. Mm -hmm. And um, Brazilian bars are kind of an easy sell um, because they are already familiar with cachaça. They, they know, they know it, they know what to do with it. And then um, people going to a Brazilian restaurant know what to expect. Uh, the 
challenging part is um, going into a non-Brazilian restaurant. So it requires a lot more education, training, um, and uh, showing them how and where to use it and how to sell it through to to the end consumer. So if Kasasha is sort of like rum in terms of the overall spirit name, what do people go in and ask for? Is it, I want a Kasasha spirit? Is that the... I know I'm butchering the name. No, no, no. Um, the you're like I said. There's no wrong way to say the name. We as long as you enjoy it, you can call it whatever you want. Um, but um, the classic drink that everyone will probably know, even before they know what cachaça kasha, uh, is, is the caipirinha. And that is the traditional drink, which is. Um, super fine uh, granulated sugar muddled with fresh lime juice and then topped with cachaça and uh, ice. And that's it. It's, it's like a daiquiri. But what are people going from a brand? So if someone says, Oh, I want Grey Goose vodka. What sure. are they? So what are they asking at a bar when you've put your product in there? Well, and that's kind of why we decided to go with the the cachaça with a K because the spirit name is with a C um, and it serves, the K serves two purposes. One, it forces somebody who's at a bar to say, do you want the one with the K or do you want the other one? So by default, our brand becomes um, part of the conversation. The other part of it was I felt that the K made it easier to pronounce the word um, because when you see C-A-C-H-A, so many people went cha-cha, you know, the the natural English tendency is is a a C-H sound. Um, So going with the K, you know that it's going to have the hard K. But I expect that um, when we do stock into a bar, if, if it's stocked there next to another cachaça um, and somebody can, says, can I have a caipirinha? They'll say, do you want cachaça with a K or, you know, Avoir or Le Blanc or whatever the other one might be. Okay. So how long do you think you'll be in until you're in bars now? I hope by the end of the year, I, I would love to be ambitious and say October. Um, but I always kind of know that I've the this crazy period of time that I'm constantly living my life in is three months. Anytime I talk to somebody, come back, you know, I'll, I'll be ready in three months. I'll be ready in three months. We'll be ready for influencer marketing in three months. We'll be ready for discussion about distributors in three months. And so that three months ben- benchmark has kind of continued to move out there. But now we're probably talking in the six to eight week time frame, which is really exciting. Yeah, that is six to eight weeks. Is re- that's co- that's close. Um, what's the what's a growth strategy? Oh, I don't know whether I even want to go into this, but what's the growth strategy that you've got? You mentioned influence marketing and and so forth. How are you going to grow it within, um, within the states? Because and I ask this from a business point of view because I'm curious about it. So, but you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. It's it's really a matter of of getting it out there and and getting people to try it. Um, mm. and it goes back to the the kasasha kasasha that's available out there right now is mm. pretty terrible um and the the pitch to a distributor or or a retailer <clears throat> is that um you know you give you're giving valuable space away to a product that at the end of the day isn't 
doesn't taste that good. And it's not on your home bar. Um, if you try my product and like it and consider it to be a better option, would you actually stock it at home versus the other products that are out there? Um, so making that case that it's kind of a joke to have cachaça, unless you're Brazilian, in which case it's a, a traditional, you know, a traditional thing. But um, right now it's, it's just a matter of saying you, you have, you've never tried this before, give it a try and it deserves a place on your bar. Beyond that, um, another marketing strategy that we've considered, and I, I don't know, I'm going to preface this by saying you may or may not want to air this after I tell the story, um, is um, thinking about gay bars here, especially in South Florida, because Cachaca has a number of names that it goes by. It's got a whole bunch of slang words um, because it's this ubiquitous spirit in Brazil. And um, one of them is pinga. And if you speak Spanish, pinga means dick. And so it gets really confusing if you've got some Portuguese Brazilian Portuguese speaking Brazilians and Spanish speakers and they, they when you say do you want a shot of cachaça do you want a pinga? So the Spanish mm -hmm. guys are like whoa 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 whoa. Um and so oh, the guy bar they'd be like yeah I'll have some dick no Exactly. <laughs> so if you turn it into a shot at a gay bar, you have a bunch of gay guys running around go, who speak Spanish already going do you want a pinga? Do you want a pinga? Do you want a pinga? It will sell like they'll buy it just because it's great to say. Yeah. So That's awesome. I'll leave it up to you if you want to leave that story. Oh, no, there's no problems putting it in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, terms of just, in terms of market growth, are you wanting to be in – how many states are there in America? Is it 50, 51? Well, that's an interesting um, aspect to the the U.S. beverage alcohol market. There are actually 52 markets. Um, there are right. 50 states, and then there is a separate um, – Montgomery County, Maryland is its own – entity and then district of columbia the capital of, the, of the, the country is its own market every single one has its own rules um its own tax structure its own distribution networks um and so as as one of um one of my friends has said uh, who's in the, the industry said uh, the u.s market is like an onion lots of layers and everyone makes you cry yeah Sounds so, like an absolute nightmare. Do you have the ability with the structure that you outlaid before with the wholesale and everything? But do you have the do you have the ability to sell uh, directly off your website to consumers? That is uh, an interesting evolution that the pandemic has kind of brought to the forefront. That's a trend in the alcohol and spirits industry. It's different for wine and beer because wine and beer are treated differently in the U.S. from, from a, um, a legal perspective. But um, with the self-distribution model that I'm, I'm initially rolling out um, through a retail partner, I will have distribution into 37 markets. And so wow. through my website, 37 different states will be able to purchase it and have it shipped to them um, outside of Florida. Okay. But that's a tricky little workaround because you need to have, um, you technically need to have a retail partner because I can't, as a supplier, I'm legally not allowed to sell to a, uh, sell to a, a consumer. So does that mean that you've got to have a distributor or a retailer managing your website technically? Technically, yes. Oh. It's bloody confusing. <laughs> it's very it's complicated. Been a, it's been a steep learning curve to pick up on all these nuances. And then you have um, 
Uh, I also spend a lot of time up in Vermont, which is a state um, further north in in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. where I'm I'm originally from, and um, they're what's considered a control state. So when you sell, they don't have distributors. When you sell to a quote unquote distributor in Vermont, you're actually selling to the state of Vermont, and then the state of Vermont sells it to the consumer. Um, that's just one flavor of what's considered a control state in the U.S. There are Is other okay? flavors as well. Are they are they doing that in terms of um, a controlled state because they more want the revenue it could and not be. just it's, the taxes? It could be. It's it's yeah. a motivation is different from state to state, but when prohibition was repealed, the federal government gave the um, autonomy to to make all those decisions to each of the states, and so they're allowed to manage that individually. There are obviously, um, or maybe not obviously, but there are there are other reasons for a state may choose one distribution model over another. Um, a lot of states could be more conservative in their con- um, consumption of alcohol. So, for example, the state of Utah has a very large um, Mormon population, and they don't drink, and they ha- are heavily present in the state legislature. So, it's a heavily controlled state, and they. So you're have just their giving Utah a but why birth? See you later. <laughs> it's a hard market to get into, but it can yeah. also be a market strategy. So, some brands, every the the adage is. The, Conventional wisdom to any new brand entering the market says, well, I want to be in New York, Miami, and LA, or California. You know, I want to be in New York, Florida, and California. But those states are are hours apart by commercial airplane. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it, it logistically doesn't make sense for a small brand to try and enter those massive markets. So a good go-to-market strategy for a smaller brand can be to serve some of the second-tier underserved markets going to places that are um, in the middle of the country and could actually be, you have a higher touch point with your consumer and mm-hmm. a higher level of you know rapport with, with the people who are buying your product because New York, Miami, and, and California are massive markets and, and the, the risk of, of um, disappearing in a portfolio is high for a small new brand. Mm. What alcohol percentage is it? Legally... Cachaça can be bottled between 35 and 45% or 38 and 48% alcohol. And ours is going to be bottled at 40%. So in line with vodka and gin and all the other stuff. Exactly. Okay. Why did you, is that why you made the decision at 40%? Because 48 is high. It's very high. And I think that um, it could be why if anybody has has had cachaça before, and they've had it maybe overproofed like that, um, they can tell you that they've had a bad night or maybe a little bit too much of a hangover the next day. Um, So and it's all about consumer experience. So yeah, making sure that um, expectations are, you know, it, it just makes sense to have it be on on par with everything else out there. So that way a consumer can easily replace it one for one in all of their favorite cocktails. Mm. And I suppose for, well, in Australia, it would be for driving as well. So you know how much to drink and all that sort of stuff. Don't drink and drive people. Um, Wow. So you sort of just before you're really doing the hard or soft launch, are you soft launching before your hard launch? 
We'll soft launch, and and there's some great um, a great part about being here in Miami is um, the the opportunity for for co sponsoring events. So um, we'll do a soft launch for the rest of the year, and hopefully um, be able to do some events for Art Basel, which mm-hmm. is a really big um, event here in Miami in December, and then. Um, the whole brand identity is really around the energy and the party of Carnival in mm-hmm. Rio. Mm-hmm. And so the timing of that is perfect with the first quarter of the year. Uh, that's where the influencer marketing comes in. We'll work with some influencers to do um, some targeted ad campaigns and really pub- uh, popularize it for that time of year where you're already thinking about Carnival, um, you know, have have the spirit of Carnival. Mm-hmm. Is the long-term... You, you might still be in the trenches in regards to this and not thinking not thinking this far ahead, but are you sort of long-term thinking about potentially becoming um, not just Kasasha? Are you thinking about maybe branching out and doing other alcohol and becoming like an alcohol umbrella in regards to manufacturer? So the brand, the branded spirit is Kashasa with a K, um, and the company is Kashasa Spirits. And from that, I have a couple of options to me. Um, one of them is because I have a, a federal import permit, I can import alcohol for other brands. And I've actually had um, a number of brand companies and brands reach out to me about importing for them already. Um, we're you know. A, Bandwidth wise, it's not something I, I can take on yet. But um, in a perfect world where Kashasa becomes a uh, a growth market within the U.S. and gains more market share and more people want it, and there there becomes space for other brands out there, I would love to import other brands um, and and give the opportunity to some of the great Kashasas that you can find only in Brazil. Um, other but options. It would also, that would also mean, though, that you've got an option of having an income, but also learning that distribution and growth model with somebody else's product that they're paying you to do it. So, you, from an income point of view, yes, and I, I would be able to take everything I'm kind I'm learning from um, from launching Kashasa into marketing and and pop, pop, popularizing another brand. Um, Another option would be to, you know, the, the most obvious option is to be acquired, um, to sell the brand to a larger uh, Diageo or um, Bacardi or something like that, um, and then do something else. Uh, but uh, it would really, you know, I'm I'm on a ride right now and I'm leaving yeah. all of my options open, which hmm. is really exciting. You could everything- be the next Bacardi. <laughs> Bacardi's really big. Uh, I know. Well, like... <laughs> so <laughs> you got to dream big, Adelaide. <laughs> I'm just trying to make sure I sleep well tonight. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Doesn't have to be tomorrow. <laughs> Doesn't have to be all done in one night. Um, oh, it feels like it though. It's the difference between working for, for a company, working for somebody else and working for yourself is, is all the pressure is on you and it's not coming from any externality other than yourself. And you're, you probably know this feeling where it's, it's all, if, if I don't do it, it doesn't get done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is true. Some days I just allow it not to get done though. For sanity, I just have to step away and have a break. Um, 
I'm so excited and I can't wait for you to to come into the Australian market. You'll need to come back onto the podcast when you do and uh, have another chat. But I'm so excited for you. I love hearing about new businesses and entrepreneurs breaking into the market and following dreams and, and overcoming that fear to do so. So thank you so much for coming on, Adelaide. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 